0: pp one deficiency is a rare mineralization disorder that leads to calcification of soft tissue. About half of newborns with the condition will die in the first year of life, while others will live well into adulthood. The condition can cause hearing loss, arterial calcification, and complications involving the heart and brain. There are currently no approved therapies for the condition. Enozyme is developing a therapy for ENPP1 deficiency and other rare mineralization disorders. We spoke to Axel Bolt, co founder and CEO of Enozyme, about ENPP1 deficiency, its lead experimental therapy to treat the condition, and its work with Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine to improve the diagnosis of newborns with the disease. Axel, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much, Danny. Um, it's a pleasure to uh, talk to you, and, uh, and thanks for having me on your uh, podcast.
0: We're going to talk about ENPP1 deficiency, enzyme and its efforts to develop therapies for rare mineralization disorders. You're focused on both the ENPP1 and ABCC6. These are two genes that, when mutated, cause deficiencies that cause mineralization. These are serious and deadly conditions. Let's start with ENPP1 deficiency. What is it?
1: ENPP1 deficiency is, um, as the name implies, a deficiency uh, in ultimately a protein as a result of many different mutations that can occur in the ENPP1 gene. The gene codes for a protein that fulfills a fundamental role in the body and actually um, is uh, imp- imp- implicated in the mineralization process. And so you have to think about how we uh, as mammals, when I say we, I, I'm talking about all mammals um, of which obviously us humans are a part of um, started to build internal skeleton um, as opposed to, you know, uh, amphibious uh, creatures and others that existed prior to the emergence of mammals. And the uh, biology that um, is implicated in that has a key uh, protein at the center, and that the is EMPP1 protein. And the role of the protein is to take uh, ATP, that is extracellular, and convert it to a drug that is called Uh, Sorry, a compound that is called PPI, and is an inhibitor and regulator of mineralization. So if I'm talking about an EMPP1 deficiency, uh, a patient with that deficiency uh, does not produce the EMPP1 protein and therefore is unable to properly mineralize. And so that leads to pathology that leads to, as you very correctly pointed out, to a very severe disease.
0: How does this condition manifest itself and progress?
1: Absolutely. That's the the key question. So um, as a result of the deficiency, as I already mentioned, we have low levels of pyrophosphate. So, again, uh, one of the other fascinating aspects is of this whole biological pathway, and it actually speaks to the redundancy of, of nature, is that extracellular ATP, very important not intracellular, but extracellular, as we mostly know ATP to be an intracellular molecule. In this case, we're talking about a different role for ATP. It's a substrate of EMPB1. It's cleaved, and two things are formed. One is PPI, or pyrophosphate. The other is uh, adenosine monophosphate, and that is further converted to adenosine. So we're interested in the biological activity of these two molecules, pyrophosphate and adenosine and the deficiency leads to very profound effects so for example the um, calcification is disturbed so what we need and i think is something that i myself only thought about you know once i got involved in the company we need mineralization to occur at very defined places namely in our skeleton so We don't want calcification in the body to occur suddenly in places where we don't want calcification Uh, if that does happen the pathological event is basically what is called ectopic calcification it's when your soft tissues calcify so which is obviously undesired other places in the skeleton itself we will see softness or or dysplasias in the skeleton yeah so the skeleton won't grow correctly Uh, the bones will be soft, etc. So, indeed, in patients, uh, the initial uh, presentation is predominantly as a result of ectopic calcification. Uh, And so, newborns uh, are forming calcification in places where it's undesired, mostly in their vascular system uh, and mostly actually in their cardiovascular system. So, the heart and their blood supply is severely impaired. We can talk about, you know, more detail what what, what happens when that occurs, but the other part is a longer-term effect, and that is, uh, you know, as I mentioned, profound effect on the skeleton, and so you have a number of skeletal uh, dysplasia, et cetera, we can talk about in more detail, but that's in the big picture, so you have an acute initial phase uh, that's mostly driven by the Ectopic calcification, the vascular calcification, and then you have a chronic phase uh, that is uh, probably predominantly driven by the skeletal effects, but it's generally an, a disease that accumulates symptoms over time as a result of the lifelong enzyme deficiency.
0: How difficult a condition is this to diagnose and how is it generally diagnosed?
1: Yes. So in rare disease, Diagnosis is obviously key, um, as you know. The um, physicians oftentimes have never encountered the disease as a, as a result of the rareness. So this is obviously a, a, a you know challenge we face here. The disease is quite rare. Um, you know, currently uh, one in two hundred thousand is the quoted live birth incidence. Although uh, we have. Strong evidence that it's much more frequent, but um, uh, leading to only uh, a couple of hundred, if not you know a couple of thousand patients in the major areas of uh, North America and Europe and so forth. So it will be very important to educate physicians to recognize the disease. So in this case, and this is a, in that sense, you know, uh, facilitating our effort. The disease is quite symptomatic, so uh, it it usually presents shortly after birth. Um, it puts uh, babies, uh, infants, into a fairly distressed uh, state. Uh, their organism is, uh, you know, hypoxic, um, and uh, for example, the calcifications uh, that I already described, you know, occurring in the wrong place, are. Visible on imaging, for example, on ultrasound. In some cases, the disease is detected in utero, pre-birth, because there is a strong, you know, echo uh, on the um, ultrasound as a result of the calcification. So, we we have a rare disease with a challenge to, you know, broaden understanding and recognition of the disease. But we do have a symptomatic disease, and if you put together uh, the symptoms. Like calcification, hypoxia, uh, and other um, you know effects such as echogenicity on the major arteries, or, or other symptoms such as uh, are detected by ultrasound, such as uh, pericardial effusions, etc. As soon as you see those, it goes very fast into the direction of uh, what is then at that stage called Gacy. GAC stands for generalized arterial calcification of infancy, which is empp one deficiency, as it's, you know, named in the infant population. Um, now, to have the full diagnosis, of course, a genetic test will be required, um, and uh, and we are actually offering one in partnership with uh, Prevention Genetics to improve uh, the detection of the disease. Uh, but uh, clinically, as I described, you know, it's a quite symptomatic disease. Um, yeah. And, but we're investing a lot in uh, disease education.
0: Do treatment Treat- options exist today? And what's the prognosis for patients with the condition?
1: So there aren't any um, approved treatment options that basically address the underlying disease. Uh, at this point... Uh, uh, symptom you know symptomatic treatment is being um, performed. You will you will you will see the use, for example, of blood pressure lowering agents. You will see uh, the use of, um, in some cases, bis- bisphosphonates, who can partially um, block the calcification process. However, they have longer term uh, toxic side effects. You can also use chelating agents such as sodium thiosulfate to again you know chelate the calcium ions to try to reduce the calcification. These things don't really address the underlying um, disease, obviously, uh, so um, they have ultimately limited effect. You can you can in other cases you know when I, when, when, when we're talking about the adolescents with uh, uh, you know skeletal effects, you can try to, you know, administer uh, you know c- you know calcium, vitamin D, and so forth to help you know with the with the rickets and so forth that these patients develop. But none of these things address the disease. So we would be a first in class therapy uh, with our approach. Um, the prognosis is uh, quite poor for newborns. Uh, the natural history uh, shows us that is about a fifty percent likelihood to die uh, of this disease within the first, let's say six to 12 months of life. Um, Once, uh, if you are lucky enough to belong to the 50% that survive, um, adulthood is reached and we have patients that reach actually quite significant age. It's unknown if there's a, uh, you know, a later mortality um, associated with the disease, the oldest patients we know are in their 50s, 60s, I would say. Um, uh, But uh, but in particular, in the um, infant phase, there is uh, high mortality.
0: You're also working on a related condition, ABCC6 deficiency. How does that relate?
1: Yeah, great question. So, I described, you know, the extracellular ATP um, and the fundamental role of the control of mineralization uh, through this pathway. And um, just upstream of the empp one enzyme is a transport protein, ABCC6. It's a channel. It is believed to be a key transporter of intracellular ATP to the extracellular medium. So because of the closeness in the biological pathway, there is a significant overlap between uh, both both pathologies, EMPB1 and ABCC6 deficiency. Um, In the case of ABCC6 deficiency, we see two distinct uh, manifestations. One is affecting infants um, and the other one is later. It's affecting late adolescence and early adulthood and is progressing then chronically. I will talk first about the infant presentation. That one is actually also called Gacy type 2. I mentioned the infant population with EMBB1 deficiency is called Gacy. So the name already implies that the medical community sees a strong overlap. Indeed, the symptomatology is very similar, uh, severe calcifications uh, and the the, um, ensuing uh, complications from that. but there is a much more common, um, more widespread form of ABCC6 deficiency that is really much better known as Pseudosanthoma elasticum, or PXE. Um, <clears throat> the, the diagnosis in PXE is usually occurring in adolescence and early adulthood, initially relatively mild, um, but then... You know, accumulating, you know, effects, you know, progressively worsening disease through the third, fourth, and fifth decade of life. A slower progress. So, as you as you hear from, as opposed to EMPP one deficiency, a slower progressing, and also affects different tissues. So it is not yet quite clear exactly which and why the tissues are differently affected, but. Um, In the case of ABCC6 deficiency, PXE, so the adult form, uh, the initial presentation is in skin calcifications, uh, which are visible, easily detected by by seeing that the skin changes. They can be very disfiguring and disturbing for patients, but they're obviously not life-threatening. There is a large proportion of patients that develop visual problems as a, cal- as a result of the calcification of their retina.
0: For patients who survive infancy, what is it like to live with either of these conditions?
1: EMPP1 deficiency, as you go through the initial infant phase and survive that, then uh, adolescence, of course, starts. So the, the, the effect of the disease is strongly related to the impact it has on growth, um, on on the changes in the body during adolescence. So I already talked about the effects on the skeleton. Uh, Obviously, we know that in adolescence, the skeletal growth is the largest. And until we are about 16 or 17, we have what is called open growth plates and the bone is elongating and so forth. So we see a strong effect on... The development of the skeleton. The patients are usually short; they don't grow. They have soft bones. They have uh, a bow, bowing of, uh, of 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 bones. They have bone pain as well. They continue to accumulate also calcification of other tissues. Of course, that doesn't go away. They can also accumulate intima proliferation, which is a different different patholo- pathological effect that is a consequence of in-growth of cells in vessels as a result of low levels of adenosine. I mentioned in the beginning that there are two molecules that we're interested in, PPI that regulates calcification and adenosine that regulates interval proliferation. So you will find patients with stents placed in them because they have uh, blocked arteries as a result of cellular growth, um, and so um, you can also find calcifications in the auditory system. So many patients can be strongly hearing impaired, um, etc. You can you can find calcifications in the brain. You can see uh, strokes happening. You know you can etc. So it's what we call a multi. Uh, let's say multi-organ disease, where it varies between patients. Some of them develop more one, and some of more the other. But you know, quite quite a quite a significant uh, burden on these patients.
0: Enerzyme is developing INZ701 in an experimental therapy and development for the treatment of mineralization disorders of the circulatory system, bones, and kidneys. What is INZ701, and, and how does it work?
1: Absolutely. So the wild-type EMPP one enzyme is a phosphodiesterase. Um, it is a membrane-bound enzyme, so it's attached to the cell membrane. The active site of the enzyme is the active domain, I should say, is at the extracellular face, uh, facing outside. Um, there the enzyme will grab an ATP molecule and cleave it to form AMP and PPI. And our co-founder, our scientific founder, Dr. Braddock from Yale University, engineered an initial drug candidate that consisted only of the catalytic domain, which is extracellular. He, he didn't bother with the membrane domain and he took that and he fused it to an FC fragment. An FC fragment is a part of a monoclonal antibody or of an antibody um, that is sometimes in drug development used to attach to a molecule where you want to extend the half-life because our goal is to have the drug ultimately you know float float around the circulatory system you know for as long as possible so it's a what's called a fusion protein so the catalytic domain that cleaves the atp fused to an fc the only role of the fc is extending the half life and that is actually the drug and then afterwards when we formed the company we tweaked it a little bit and improved it and that is now what is inz701
0: And and what's known about INZ-701 from studies that have been done to date?
1: So, of course, we tested INZ-701 in animals first, um, and we were very pleased with um, very strong uh, data that uh, showed we can raise PPI or pyrophosphate rapidly in in a significant way. And we also tested whether we can prevent the calcifications from setting in. We also investigated whether we can prevent the intimal proliferation from setting in. And once we had all that, uh, we moved forward and we went to the FDA. Uh, we developed a preclinical program. I will just say at this point, the drug has been very well tolerated and safe, and therefore we were allowed to go into humans. So what the real interesting question is, I guess, which is your question, is what have we done in human clinical trials so far? So we are currently conducting two clinical trials. The first one in EMBB1 deficiency, where uh, in this first in human study, we enroll nine subjects and we treat them for 32 days with INC701 every uh, sorry, every every three days, uh, twice a week, I should say. Um, and after 32 days, we assess, you know, PK and we, we measure PPI, you know, the critical biomarker. Then the patients can roll over into an extension to what is called an open-label extension for another 48 weeks, basically f- for a total of one year, uh, pretty much, where we will be also measuring clinical measurements, imaging, x-rays, uh, also, physical function, patient-reported outcomes, and other measurements. Um, so um, we are currently uh, in the third cohort in this trial. So far, we've been very encouraged by the data we've seen. Uh, we announced uh, significant, rapid, and sustained increases in PPI. Uh, these patients have about eighty percent, eighty to ninety percent lower PPI as a healthy volunteer. uh, And we were able to bring that PPI level right into the middle of the range that healthy volunteers show. Um, And so we're, at least from a biomarker by these data um, uh, and the, also I should say the safety profile of of INZ 701 in EMPP1 deficiency. We have a second clinical trial ongoing in our second indication, ABCC6 deficiency, that is currently in the second dose cohort we have recently announced data from the first cohort, very similar trial design as an EMPP1 deficiency, nine subjects will be enrolled in total. Uh, We have seen rapid and significant increases in PPI after the injection Um, and then, We've seen, you know, levels of PPI that stayed in the lower end of the healthy volunteer range. Uh, We believe in that indication we might need to go to a higher dose. And that's actually what's going on right now. Uh, And it will be followed by the third dose, you know, which we expect to uh, start sometime in the fall. So uh, we are very excited about both of these trials uh, ongoing. Um, uh, We have... um, you know, interested and excited patients on the studies. And um, we will then, uh, you know, based on the results we gather, uh, determine and design, you know, how the, the you know, final uh, studies will look, you know, that should you know, then be submitted to the FDA for, for approval. Uh, and those will be, uh, you know, initiated at the end of the year.
0: There are other non-genetic diseases of abnormal mineralization associated with low levels of PPI. Is there reason to believe INZ701 could benefit patients with those conditions? And is there any plan for pursuing those indications?
1: Yeah, this is a a great question, uh, Danny. Um, And I will uh, say that we believe that this is a unique opportunity in the sense that Traditional ERT or enzyme replacement is really quite limited to a very particular enzyme deficiency and therefore will always be relegated to just treating that ultra-rare or rare disease. We believe we have somewhat of a different situation here because of the mechanism of action. And I mentioned already, we are really interested in the biological activity of pyrophosphate and adenosine. Now, both of these molecules are unavailable as drugs because they have very short half-lives. So you couldn't just administer pyrophosphate. You'd, You'd never be successful doing that. Neither could you administer adenosine. So the way to get to those molecules and the way to get them to have their biological effect is to use INZ701. And because there are you know, basic effects that they have, this allows us to potentially go for indications that not necessarily have an enzyme deficiency, but for example, have low levels of pyrophosphate or adenosine. And indeed, there are a number of such uh, conditions around. So for example, axis is a, a condition that affects patients with end-stage renal disease. It is a, a complication, a rare complication that can affect between 3 and 5% of patients with end-stage renal disease. That's actually a pretty significant number. Um, and those patients have normal, we assume, normal levels of the EMBB1 enzyme, so they don't technically have the deficiency. However, they have very low levels of PPI, and we recently presented at the ECTS conference in Helsinki that the PPI levels in axis patients are actually about 80 to 90% lower than uh, in, in a healthy volunteer. And so the simple concept would be give those patients INZ701 and see whether you can raise PPI and therefore have an effect on the disease. Now the symptoms of calciphylaxis look in some aspects very similar to empp1 deficiency in the sense that in small arteries there is the similar type of calcification occurring as we see in empp1 deficiency it's just it's happening interestingly in the small arteries and not in the large arteries and because the small arteries don't tolerate any blockage at all, neither through calcification nor through internal proliferation. They're highly sensitive to being, uh, you know, perturbed in their blood flow, and the small arteries have the key role to providing oxygen to the tissue, directly, ultimately into the tissues, and if you have a calcification there, the tissue is not supplied with oxygen, nutrients, and therefore will die off. Uh, and the severeness of calcification comes from the necrosis, as it's called, of the tissue um, and the consequences that that has. Uh, and we believe if we raise PPI and if we therefore prevent the calcification of the small arteries, we will be able to um, prevent these, uh, you know, life-threatening uh, necrosis. Uh, that occurs in calcifylaxis.
0: Innozyme is participating in the Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine's Beginnings Partnership to advance newborn screening. Can you be- describe the Beginnings program and Enzyme's role in it?
1: Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so I'll just say we have um, a number of activities related to, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, uh, raising the awareness of the disease and improving the diagnosis i mentioned already our um, prevention genetics uh, uh, genetic testing program but really we are very interested in um, uh, increasing diagnosis um, and obviously and obviously identifying patients and um, uh, and that is in our mind best achieved um, uh, with the next uh, generation technologies uh, and, and therefore obviously as the name already implies Beginnings actually has the NGS in the word Next Generation Sequencing to now um, provide a genetic confirmation. The goal is actually ultimately to expand this program to almost all newborns. So the Beginnings Consortium is building you know, an ecosystem that will ultimately roll out um, the 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 uh, the beginnings program across as many uh, hospitals, so that in the end, uh, you know, most almost every newborn in the United States will be you know screened with it. That's the long-term goal. Um, Radius Children has profound experience in rapid genome uh, sequencing. The turnaround time that they have is. Extremely fast, and that was one of the uh, critical attributes. Because, as you can imagine, in a critical disease, you don't have time to wait—you know—for weeks and days and weeks, you know, for a result of a of a full—you uh, know—fully sequenced genome. Uh, and therefore, from this kind of technology leadership, they became, you know, the driver. Now, other um, parties involved in the beginnings program are AstraZeneca rare disease on Alexion, which is Alexion, of course. Uh, There's a company called Travere Therapeutics, and there's Innozyme. We are basically the uh, founding uh, members from the kind of pharmaceutical side, but there are other providers that contribute, uh, you know, various parts of uh, the required, um, uh, you know, technology. Obviously, sequencing technology is actually in partnership with Illumina, uh, no surprise there, etc. so um, uh, we we are incredibly excited uh, about this program um, uh, and and, uh, and to be part of it and um, and we, uh, we, we just started uh, or just started and we look forward to uh, rolling this as this is hopefully being rolled out rapidly over the next couple of years
0: and what do you ultimately hope comes from the partnership?
1: Well, obviously, improved detection i mean um, if you have a uh you know full genome sequence, you can detect uh many many um, you know d- diseases, and uh, if that is done uh, in a in a a newborn screening way um that uh, that ultimately makes sure that you know all all potential patients with e m b p one deficiency or any other rare disease will be identified early. Early identification is critical. Newborn screening itself uh, exists now, but is an incredibly time-consuming and slow process. Newborn screening uh, often is, is, is often misunderstood. Will only be done in indications that have an approved therapy, um, uh, and only once there is a therapy approved can you start the addition, you know, to the newborn screening. Um, I guess. I guess, protocol, if you will. And so, uh, it's actually a state-by-state state thing. So, if we wanted to get our disease on newborn screening, we would be waiting, you know, I don't know, for another 20 years until that happened, or maybe a little bit less. But but here, the idea is that um, the beginnings platform will leapfrog that because of the power of whole genome sequencing and just immediately make all the genomic available, uh, information available and significantly improve early detection of these rare diseases across all, all rare diseases.
0: Axel Boat, CEO of Enozyme Pharma. Axel, thanks so much for your time today.
1: My pleasure, Danny. It's been a fun talking to you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening.